there we go. I will invite you to open up your Bibles, if you would, to the letter of James. And we're going to continue in looking through this very interesting letter, very appropriate and applicable, perhaps even much more so given the season that we're in for some reason, the Christmas season. I've, uh, we're going to be dealing in particular with verses, chapter 1, verses 14 to 16 will be our focus this morning, and um, I've titled uh, what we'll be covering this morning, Dealing with Temptation, Dealing with Temptation. So question for you, don't raise your hands please, but question for you, and that is how many of you woke up this morning with a predetermined intent to sin? Yeah, don't, don't raise your hands, like I said. The fact is that this is actually not as rare or as unusual as you might otherwise think, which is kind of strange. Many people actually go to sleep intending to finish what they had started or were doing before their need for sleep overtook them. Just a couple of quick examples, which I'm sure some of you may or may not be able to relate to. One would be to eat a piece of unfinished pie the next morning. How about resume playing just one more turn of that very addictive video game? Or maybe determining, predetermining to sleep in longer than you normally would or should for whatever reason. And any of these activities, when they violate your conscience, because you know that you've already indulged in them, that particular activity far more than God would likely be pleased with, constitutes a form of premeditated sin. Also, on the other hand, how many of you woke up with a clear conscience and a good night's sleep? And you don't need to raise your hands for that one either. But you had no intention whatsoever of sinning in any way, shape, or form this morning. However, within a very short period of time, you succumbed to thinking, saying, or doing something that you actually know displeased the Lord, and you had to end up confessing, repenting, and asking for forgiveness, both of God and perhaps even somebody else that you may have impacted by your thoughtless or perhaps even thoughtful, but not well-received words or actions. And that, too, is... uh, a problem that we face because it's nearly impossible to get out of bed for any period of time before some form of spiritual warfare is already battling within us. Sins of commission and omission plague us regularly and we struggle time and again, oftentimes against the same ones with various degrees of success, but never without some degree of frustration, anxiety, regret, and shame. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how James continues to address this idea, this concept of temptations to sin. We must guard ourselves because giving in to temptations, as we will read momentarily, results in death. And furthermore, every believer should know the difference between trials and testing, which come upon us, we regularly have various challenges, and the difference between them and temptations. And the reason for that is because if we manage to make a 
the distinction accurately, then we can properly ascribe our circumstances, their origins, and we can respond appropriately and wisely. But let's first begin with just a quick general review before we go into the word here of what we've covered up unto verse 13 in James. So we, re- we realize and, and maybe recall that James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he serves as this pastor in the church in Jerusalem. And this letter, this epistle that James pens, is actually the very first formal written scripture that is included in the New Testament canon. Nothing of the New Testament is available to new believers in writing up until this point. All the believers right now at this period of time are living their lives that are modeled on the apostles' teaching, their verbal, their verbal teaching, and the the, their lives, the way that they're modeling their lives and living out their lives. That's what's, that's what's serving as guidelines for the new believers living in this period of time. And so James writes to these new Christians who have come out of Judaism and need to know how they are to live their lives in light of this new covenant that they are under rather than the law because they came out of that. They are either apostate, they didn't believe, they may not have even been followers of the Mosaic Covenant or the law, they likely were, but now there's something that's changed. Their newfound life in Christ is neither easy nor getting any easier. And there's much persecution from the Jews, we know that, including, and not only just from the Jews in general, from, from neighbors, but also even potentially friends and from family. And many believers have been scattered abroad. And these believers are struggling, and they need guidance on how to tell if their faith is genuine. How are they supposed to treat newcomers? How are they supposed to treat and interact with other believers and and know if if they're genuine or not? How should they be living in a way that reflects Christ's teachings that that he articulated while he was uh, on earth? And even though something profound has happened and continues to happen in their lives by way of the Holy Spirit that is now dwelling within them, there's much confusion because so many continue to wrestle with their old habits and old ways of thinking and how they're supposed to interact with and deal with the law and and with the Jews around them and and legalism. And then there's this new, new form of confusion and, and, and concern that's growing called Gnosticism. And so there's all these issues that are confronting these new believers. And many trials, tribulations, and temptations currently testing their faith and will test it yet further and will help to reveal both to themselves and to others whether they're actually truly born again. And how they respond to their various trials is one of the key ways that they can make a determination as whether they are in the faith or whether it's empty, whether it's just words, whether it's just mere profession. And as noted in the last sermon, addressing verse 13, to accuse God that he is the source of anyone's temptations and that he is the one who's responsible for any moral failures in anyone's life is blasphemous. And to ease your troubled conscience by blaming God for your sin is desperately wicked and deceitful. That's what we talked about last time. 
And this now leads us to the question at hand. So where do temptations and sin come from? And how do they work to corrupt and to undermine the heart of believers whose only desire is or ought to be, should be, to seek and to follow after Christ? By God's grace, through the Holy Spirit, James provides an answer to these questions and indirectly supplies us with a way to navigate the various temptations that we will inevitably face in life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we give this time over now and as we go into his word. Heavenly Father, we just ask that as we now look at your word and we have a sense of how it was written, to whom, for the reasons that we would appropriate this truth into our thinking, into our lives, that we would be confronted and encouraged and motivated to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you on the basis of what your Holy Spirit is revealing to us through your very words. We just pray that this would be a time of edification and blessing, and if need be, a time of confronting sin in our hearts and our lives to your glory and for Christ's name. And we pray these things. Amen. All right, let's take a look at our text this morning. We'll open our Bibles. You've already got them there in James chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. And we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into this. James 1.14 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So James writes here, he says in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Let's, let's see what this means or how, how this speaks to us. Well, first of all, the word but there is obviously a contrast to what he's just written. He is saying, however, or on the other hand, what he's just saying is now... Uh, different than what he just said in the verse earlier. So let's just look at that just to refresh our memories and to see what the contrast is here. In verse 13, he says, let no one say, which apparently a lot of people were saying, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So we can see here that this is a contrast, but... In other words, rather, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And so each one here talks about this universality, if you will, of temptation. Each person, every man, every woman, every child is going to be and is tempted. There aren't any exceptions. And not only is each one tempted, but each one is is tempted, and that is, is not may be tempted, each one may be tempted when, you know, it's a conditional kind of maybe. No, he's saying each one is or will, is, a, is a, as a matter of fact, is tempted. It indicates a certainty, a reality, and it simply exists. No one is immune from temptation. That's who we are. That's where we live. It's, it's, it's what we've come out of. It's, it's, it's life. 
And when he is carried away and enticed refers to the fact that this is a predisposition, if you will. It is a, it's, a, it's towards pursuing something. We do that. We're, we're tempted when we are carried away and enticed. The present tense underscores the continuing, repeated, and inescapable reality of the process which occurs when a person is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And we'll examine this more just very shortly here. And, and, and he ends this particular sentence, this verse, by saying, by his own lust. And the question is here, okay, well, by what? Lust. But who's his own? So he's saying, it is by my, it is by, by your, it is, is by, by our own personal lust. And we'll examine this here in a, in a moment shortly as well. But the idea here is we need to begin with an understanding of what temptation is. And so, and then after we look at what temptation is, then we'll follow that and we'll look at what constitutes lust itself. So there's temptation. Each one is tempted when he's carried away by his own lust. We'll look at that. And that'll set us up for examining verse 15, where we're going to tie those two ideas, the concept together, and we'll address this chain of temptation that James clearly outlines for us. And I think we'll find that really helpful. So you may recall that earlier in the text, uh, we looked at this uh, word for um, temptation, but it was actually translated trial earlier. And uh, the idea is that the same word for either test or trial can also be translated as temptation, and it all depends on the context in which it's being used. So up until now, James has used it within the context of a test or a trial, which God brings or allows into someone's life. Right? We can just go back and it says, Consider it all joy in verse 2, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So, various tests, various challenges. He's not using the word here as in, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various temptations. He's not saying that. He's saying it's trials and tests. And so, the idea here is that tests and trials are things that God brings into our lives or allows into our lives in order to. Uh, develop our character, to help us, to, to create something in us. And we know what that is because he go, James goes on to tell us that it creates endurance. Peter affirms this later in one of his letters when he writes, in this, in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, he writes, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come, so these trials have come, so that your faith of far greater worth than gold, and we all love gold and we know what it's worth, which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So our faith is far more precious than gold, and our faith is tested, it's tried, it's refined. It's God, God uses and, and, and he, he, um, he forges our faith through trials and tests. But by way of contrast, when you are tempted, 
you are in a situation or a test that actually challenges and reveals your heart and character to yourself and which tests your commitment and loyalty to God's commands with a very distinct moral or worship focus to it. So temptations are different than trials because temptations are, are bringing into the picture something that is now, it, it, it's a, a moral decision, it's a right and wrong, it's a true or false equation, whereas trials are typically, you endure them, you undergo them, and so there's this nuanced sense. It, it, is, it is true that a test or a trial that we are in the midst of can switch over to temptation in an instant. That is when we're not bearing up under it particularly well. That is when something is happening in our life and we'd normally just sort of say, meh, you know, whatever. This, these things happen. I don't know, you're driving down the highway and, and you're following a vehicle and all of a sudden a rock comes off the back of the vehicle in front of you and hits your windshield and it breaks. And it's like, that's life, that happens. And you're going, and the first reaction is sort of like, oh man, you know, why this? Why now? What an inconvenience. And then you go, oh no, that's okay, it's okay. Lord, it's your car, it's your windshield, it's your money. I can, I can deal with it. But then a little bit long, later, you're, you're going, you're starting to get a little irritated and annoyed. And uh, perhaps you start grumbling and complaining under your, your breath about the driver or the reason he didn't sweep the rocks off the back of his truck or, you know, whatever. And, it's, and it can go from a trial to the temptation to get angry and bitter and twisted over something that's going on. And when your obedience and your loyalty or faith in God is pushed hard and it's on the line, it starts to become a, tempta a temptation. And your relationship with the Father is challenged because of your own personal desires or wants, whatever they may be. Could be comfort, could be pleasure, could be relief. Uh, they, they start to make themselves felt. They start to take on a, a heavier, heavier weight in your life and in your thinking. Your selfish thoughts or test or trial that you are currently experiencing aren't being received with the joy and the, the embracement, if you will, for the sake of God's stated purpose of acquiring greater endurance. And you're losing sight of the fact that whatever's happening in your life right now, God's in control of. He's allowed it, or he actually made it happen directly, and you're supposed to learn from it. There's, he's teaching us a lesson. He's challenging something in our mind or in our heart regarding life and its vicissitudes, it's, its unpredictability, unpredictable nature, and we're responding poorly to that. So rather, what happens is your flesh, that is your old self, is rearing its ugly head and suggesting that obedience or endurance or abstinence aren't worth it in this particular moment. The payoff for disobedience, indulgence, and giving in appears higher than what God has promised to the contrary. In other words, we're, we're tricked, we've de we're deceived, we, we've decided that bearing up under this particular trial or circumstance isn't worth it for whatever reason. And, and we'll develop this also a little bit more shortly in, in detail as we break down the elements of the, of the chain of temptation. But 
Let's now look at, we've talked about temptation, let's look at what lust is and what it consists of. The word lust is not used here in this restricted uh, sexual sense that we might normally associate with the word, all right? It, rather, the, the Greek word is epithemia, and it denotes an inordinate sinful desire of whatever kind. So it's a sort of a basket kind of a word. Lust, we kind of lust after something. We, we, we really strongly desire. And again, it's not necessarily sexual. It could be almost after anything. And um, it's inconsistent with God's law, whatever it is. So Paul and the other church leaders, they noted that our hearts are just naturally full of the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And Romans 6, 12, for example, and Ephesians 2, verse 3, and the like. So all these various desires have their respective objects and sources of gratification. And, and these objects, when they come before our eyes, or in the eye of our mind, or, you know, in our thinking, for whatever reason, they work in their, partic their particular desires and draw them into action. And, and it's this inward working, if you will, of the desire. It's going forth in the imagination and in the heart towards this unlawful object. This is what constitutes the, the, the process, if you will, of temptation. We should just pause for a moment and just note that it's both appropriate and important to acknowledge that God actually, who is infinitely good as we know, and he surrounded us with numerous sources of enjoyment, right, and delight. I mean, there's so many things that we can just look around the world and, and we can see that God is clearly God and he's awesome and he's wonderful. And however, the, the evil desires of our depraved nature just tempt us to abuse these otherwise natural, normal, wonderful blessings. And, and instead of employing them to the glory of their creator, in other words, through worship or whatever, uh, we instead pervert them to his dishonor. And, and it should really come as no surprise that the same things that draw us and, and to a holy and, and wonderful God and that are caused to, to humble our souls before him could potentially also seduce and corrupt our heart from him. That's just, it just happens. We're just inclined and we're wired that way. John warns us of this very propensity or this very normal and natural uh, inclination that we have within us when he says in John 2, 15 and 16, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so these three, these words, they present three principal uh, sources or anchors, if you will, for, for lust. And, and John actually uses the word, the lust there, and of and they are of the human heart. And they are the sources pretty much of almost all the various temptations and the sins and mischief and misery that usually come, um, that we come into contact with. Namely, so we, he's identified the lust of the flesh, which is basically impurity. It's, uh, it's pleasure. It's, it's comfort. 
There's also the lust of the eyes, which tends to look at wealth. It's covetousness. It's greed, if you will. It's power. It's, some, it's wanting something that's out there. And then there's this lust of the pride of life, which, respect, which kind of reflects uh, recognition. It's, it's pride. It's, it's wanting respect and demanding respect from certain people and, and or certain institutions or whatever it is. And, and could even resu- it could even be to some degree, I want to be, be catered to. I want to be worshipped. I want to be you know, elevated more than I am. And, and these are capable of an endless variety of modifications and degrees and combinations. So there's, there's, it's not just one size fits all. There's, it's nuanced. There's all kinds of elements and aspects of, of this flesh and this greed and, this, and this, uh, the pleasures and comfort. And they all work together to kind of just come and, and serve us up a big platter of bad temptation. And they are justly designated and and kind of incorporated in this basket of what John calls all that is in this world. And they are the roots of all the evil that we face. They are anchored and they're obtained basically by two primary ones, and that is pride and greed. Not being satisfied with what you've got and thinking way more highly of yourself than you ought. Those are sort of the two primary fundamental problems that we have as human beings that we're born with and we carry forward throughout our lives. And those who have followed after them have pierced themselves with many griefs, as Paul writes to Timothy. It's also important to address the immediate qualifier which James notes concerning lust. He says, we read, Every man is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And this is obviously meant to be emphatic. He, he refers back to verse 13 like we just looked at, and he's basically saying this lust, this desire, this inordinate, unlawful, God-unapproved desire that you have is not of God. It is your own. It is his own lust. And all the evil that is in man and all the temptation that comes out of our hearts is our own. It is never God's fault. It is never originating from God. So we come now to our examination of this beginning of what we call the the, the chain of temptation, if you will. And part of that is found in verse 14 and then it's finished in verse 15. So James writes there and he says, he uses these two terms, carried away and enticed in verse 14. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And both these, both these words, are, they're, uh, they're closely, they're, they're linked, they're, they're related to each other, but they're somewhat subtle. The first term is uh, from a verb and uh, excelco, I guess, which is the meaning of dragging away. You're, you're carried away. You're dragged away as if compelled by some kind of an inner desire. And, and is often used, apparently back then, in that time, as a hunting term. It, is, it refers to a baited trap designed to lure an unsuspecting animal into it. And so there's a sense in which there's this this trap, you may be out looking for, for, for rabbits or foxes or it could be almost anything, some kind of an animal, and you, and, you, and you put down 
a bunch of apples for, for the local deer to come by and you're going to shoot the deer. That's a bait, it's a trap. And that's what this is referring to. And the second term, this enticed, is from deliso, which is commonly used as a fishing term. And it refers to another form of bait. And that purpose here is to lure the prey from safety to death. And so the idea there is to get the fish hooked so that you can reel it in and you can make a snack out of the fish. So that's this idea where you know, you've got this hunting, fishing analogy, if you will. And so these animals and fish are successfully lured to traps and hooks because the bait is too attractive for them to resist. It looks good. It smells good. It's appealing strongly to the animal's senses. And this desire, if you will, for the bait is so intense that it actually causes them to lose caution and to overlook and to ignore the trap or the hook until it's too late and they're, and they're bagged. And in exactly the same way, we succumb to temptation when our own lusts draw us towards evil things that are appealing to our own fleshly desires. And, and let's admit it sin can look very attractive and pleasurable. And it usually is, at least for a little while. I mean, otherwise it wouldn't have any power over us, right? I mean, if sin was repulsive, it was, it was uh, unappealing, I mean, who's going who's gonna to chase after sin if there's, no value, if there's no reason to do that? I mean, nobody does that. And so there is a sense in which it is attractive for whatever reason. And we cannot, or at least we should not, blame Satan or demons or ungodly people or the world, the satanic world system in general, for our own lust. The fact is that even more certainly we cannot blame God for why we are attracted to sin. The problem is not the tempter from outside of us. It's not other people. It's not the government made me do it, it's not my, my spouse or my children or my cook, boss at work or whatever, parents. The problem is that we are subject to temptation and sin because of the traitor that is within us. The fault is entirely within us, in our unredeemed flesh. And although we have been gloriously saved, that we've been made partakers of the divine nature, according to 2 Peter 1.4, and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we nevertheless retain an enemy within, in the form of still sinful and corrupted longings, passions, lusts, the flat, what constitutes the flesh. And even that in which is in itself good and honorable, can be lusted after for sinful reasons. For example, again, food and sleep are wonderful and necessary gifts from the Lord, without which we could not live. Those, they're necessities of life. We have to eat, we need sleep. But when we desire and when we covet them in extreme ways, they can become either gluttony, in the case of food, where you overeat and overindulge, on the one hand, and or you could be a, a, a sloth, a sluggard, lazy, if you overindulge in your sleep. You have to put constraints and limits on these things. Uh, sexual love, of course, is another supreme gift that God has given to men and women for mutual pleasure, but it was designed with no exception exclusively 
for marriage. And so God's word condemns few sins more severely than sexual gratification outside of marriage. But that's what we do naturally as human beings. We take something good, a nice, you know, a wholesome desire, a wholesome uh, appreciation for something that's healthy and good, and it can become corrupted. It can turn into something that turns into a lure, a bait, a trap that taken to its extreme causes us to sin. So while we are all vulnerable to the sins that scripture forbids, each person has his or her own particular special desires or lusts. So, you know, just in the same way that uh, bait or lure works well with one kind of fish, but not with others, so one person's passion is another person's repulsion. In other words, there's some people who just love, I don't know, cars. There's other people who love pizza. And then there's other people who hate pizza. And there's other people who hate cars. Not too many people, but some people probably hate some kind of cars or makes and models, whatever it is. But there's things that some people are, you know, they're just very fond of and they love this. And other people say, meh, I couldn't care less. I've known some people near and dear to my very, very heart itself that are fairly ambivalent or indifferent towards sports in general. Whereas other people really, really love sports. They, 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 they live for sports. They, they watch sports. They listen to sports. They follow it. For whatever reason, they're into it. But for other people, they're not. And that's just the way it works. And it is therefore each person's own particular lusts that each believer needs to be most concerned about because those, and that, those are the, where you're vulnerable to temptation. And our commonality is actually not in the particular lusts. Like It's not like everybody here would agree that we should all, you know, that uh, this is really, really particularly attractive but bad. Not everybody would do that. But rather, it's the fact that we all have different things in our hearts that we're predisposed towards, that we're pre-wired to really um, seeking after, perhaps inordinately. So we are personally susceptible to them, and we have a sole personal responsibility for responding to them. In other words, I can't go up to somebody and tell them, you know what, your problem is that you spend way too much time watching sports on TV, reading sports magazines, well, I don't know, making bets in sports, enjoying whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're doing sports-related, if you only stop doing that, you'd be a better Christian, you'd be a better person, a better believer. God would be much more pleased with you. I can't do that because it's not the same for everybody. And some people enjoy things in moderation. And some people take them to excess. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all. Everybody's got their own little particular little lure and bait that they kind of get trapped by. And you know, you probably have a fairly good sense for each one of you here as to what it is that you're inclined to doing that you ought not to be doing. And that's part of it. So moving on now, in our further examination of this chain of temptation, we read in verse 15. So if you want to look there, it says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so we 
James is shifting his metaphors there from hunting and fishing, baiting and luring and trapping stuff. James now uses this process, if you will, of childbirth to illustrate his point that he's making. And lust, in this case now, is depicted as a mother conceiving and bearing a child, which is actually sin, and whose ultimate destiny is death. And so through James... Our Lord makes clear that sin is not an isolated act or even a series of isolated, just one-off acts, but rather it's a result of a specific process which he goes on to explain for us, which is helpful because if we know that when we commit a sin, there's a process involved in that sin that gives us some degree of hope and some uh, sense of uh, initiative that maybe... We don't have to go through this entire process, and, and that's true. John MacArthur actually provides a very helpful analysis and explanation of how James ties these concepts together. He, he notes that to, to help us to remember this process that we're just about to look at somewhat better, says that uh, we can identify the four basic steps of temptation, if you will, with words that begin with the letter D. And so the first step, the first initial move into towards temptation is desire. And uh, an alternative translation, as we already looked at, a, a large desire. So rather than using lust in order for MacArthur to use the four Ds, which he's fond of doing, he uses desire, which is a, which is a synonym or a, a, an equally accurate uh, way to, to say lust is desire. And before salvation, all people are slaves to desires, to, to lust, if you will, inordinate ones. And as noted before, it is itself morally and spiritually neutral. In other words, everybody's got desires. Everybody likes certain things. Everybody's got, everybody's got an eye or an ear for certain kinds of music or for certain kind of art or certain kind of whatever, fill in the blank. And that's all right. It's rightness and wrongness of that particular object that we are kind of naturally attracted to or gravitate to is that it's what determines whether it's an inordinate or a bad desire is partially by how, how great that desire, how much that desire has for us, and the purposes for which that desire is being pursued or being given greater and greater consideration. So this desire is actually begins as an emotion. It's, it's a feeling. It's a longing. It's, uh, it's for something that it could even be somewhat subconscious or unconscious in nature. It develops from somewhere deep within us, from our, from our hearts. It expresses a want to either acquire it or achieve it or possess it and, and, and we don't have it right now. That's why it's a desire. If we had it, we wouldn't desire it because we've got it. So it's not, I guess, you know, my precious, you know, the ring, you've got, you've got the thing, the object of your desire and you're still desiring it even more. That's even sadder, isn't it, in some respects, but that's the way it works. It's something that you really, really love, and you just keep loving it, and you want it even more, or it takes a greater hold of you, a grip. 
you know, is like looking in a jewelry store window and it can spark an immediate and strong desire for either a ring or a watch or a bracelet or something. Uh, you could uh, be walking past a, a model, a show home, for example, and you suddenly feel this intense longing to have a house that looks like it or has got some of the features of it. Uh, you're driving past an automobile dealership and suddenly this sparks this desire or longing, typically in spring, for a new car or something like that. Uh, you might not have even thought about this particular make, model, brand before, but all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, you're driving by and it's yeah, that, that looks good for whatever reason. And there's just too many things, obviously, to mention. Uh, there's different examples. But this desire may develop, and it gains our full attention in some way, shape, or form. And, and this desire, this inordinate lust to sin comes in much the same way. Something that we see or hear about suddenly grabs our attention and draws out this strong longing, this, this strong urge, this desire or lust to have it or to do it. In fact, it doesn't even necessarily even happen necessarily, uh, suddenly or unexpectedly, although uh, it usually does happen that way. Typically, we're caught off guard by it, like we're just doing, minding our own business and out of boom, out of nowhere, either thought comes in or you see something and that triggers the, the longing for it. That's usually the way it happens, but some people just kind of kind of relish and think about it and plot and plan and scheme and thing, and then it starts to grow and consume them and, and grows larger within them. But the point is that at some point, we begin to covet. And so this primarily, this, this, this desire piece, involves the heart. The next step is deception, which is more closely related to the mind than it is to our emotions. So when we think about this particular desired object that we've got that our heart is yearning or longing for, our mind begins to rationalize a justification for getting it. It is virtually automatic. I mean, you know, you look at something uh, as part of the process of temptation. We don't have to tell our minds to rationalize our lusts because they're already predisposed towards that by our very nature, by our fallenness. It's like the animal or the fish that goes after the bait. The desire to have what we want is so strong that we're inclined to discount any possible dangers or harms, just simply wanting it justifies the effort to have it. I want it. I like it. I should have it. I must have it. And it's at that point, James says, that this lust or this desire has now conceived. It's, it's now, it, it's, it's not just the desire, but you've rationalized, you've justified the desire, and so now You've got this life of sin as, if you were, it's just started to form and started to grow, and this primarily involves the mind. So we've got the heart inclined. We've got the mind saying, yeah, what the heart wants, yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. I, I, think, I think that that makes sense. I think we, should, we, we needs it. It's a really, really good. The third step is that of design. When plans start to be made to fulfill this emotional desire that we have rationalized and justified with our minds. And this stage involves our will, it, our conscious decision to pursue our desire or this lust until it is satisfied. 
And it's because the will is involved, this is the stage where the most guilt lies. This is where Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, 27, 28. You'll recall he says, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what has been longed for and then subsequently been rationalized is now consciously pursued as a matter of choice. In other words, you could have discarded the initial, the initial look or the, 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 you know, the desire. Then when it came to rationalizing and justifying, you say, no, you know, God, God wouldn't want me to have, God, no, no, I know better than that. No, now you've moved into the third stage where you're consciously pursuing this as a matter of choice and the sin for all intents and purposes at this point in time already has been committed. You've planned it. The only, act, only, the only thing is the actual follow-through has yet to be completed. And this puts both your heart and your mind, your, your, your thoughts, your rationalization, your desires are now together in formulating the plan of how I'm going to get this. And that's the fourth stage and final stage, and that's disobedience. So if we follow the process or we allow it to continue, the design or plan inevitably produces disobedience to God's law by which it gives birth to sin. And that which is desired, which is then rationalized, and that is now willed, is actually done. It's committed. It's accomplished. You you did whatever it was. Well, you took the drink, smoked the drug, whatever it is. This involves the rest of the body in some way, shape, or form in carrying out the plan. So to summarize this chain, we've got this desire that starts in the heart, and that leads to deception. And this deception is the mind's justification, if you will, of the desire. I've I've deceived myself. I'm self-deceived. Then you start plotting and planning, you design, and that design then leads to disobedience, and that disobedience that is carrying it out, carrying out the plan, is sin. And at this point, it is simply a matter of consequences, which remain yet to be determined and dealt with. And we'll just address those now. Why? Because James already says, in verse 15, says, then when lust is conceived, It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, what happens? Brings forth death. The child, conceived by lust or this inordinate desire, which is sin, which is born, is actually, this child is a murderer. It's a killer. To use it another way, or say it another way, is the wages of sin is death. And sin brings forth three different kinds of death. One is can and will bring physical death, which is separating the soul from the body when we die. It brings forth a spiritual death where it separates the soul from God, our creator, and it brings forth an eternal death which separates both the body and the soul from God for eternity, forever. That's the That's the eternal death. But thanks be to God, through our faith in Jesus Christ, 
a Christian is saved from both the spiritual death and the physical death, or the eternal death, I mean. We, we're not spared the physical death. But even if a Christian does, and, and many Christians can and do persist in sin, there may be a penalty of physical death. Because some of the believers in Corinth were partaking in the Lord's Supper unworthily, they brought judgment on themselves. And for this reason, Paul says, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That is, he's saying that some of the Corinthians have actually been taken by God, and, and they died probably prematurely in some respects. I mean, every death, everybody goes, oh, they were so young, you know, even a 90-year-old. He was so young, he was just in the prime of life, whatever. He was enjoying life. The fact is, death is death. But God will sometimes take people. John also says that even for believers, there is a sin leading to death in 1 John 5, 16. And, and one other thing to bear in mind is that whenever sin is involved, more often than not, there are consequences that are linked to that sin. Not, maybe not immediate physical death, but certainly other potential negative effects. We know that Paul writes in Colossians 3.25, he says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So we know that God believe, will, will administer consequences. In Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh um, corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so he makes this contrast. He says, obedience results in life, disobedience and sin will result and can result in death. And so in light of these sobering truths, James implores, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Stop blaming other people, circumstances, or Satan for your temptations and sins. And above all, do not blame God. Take full blame on yourselves where it belongs. Realize that your enemy, your fallenness, your lusts, your weaknesses, your rationalizations, and your sins are from within you and have to be dealt with from within. And that is only possible if you have the power of God residing within you by way of the Holy Spirit. Look, if you're, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that you, you need to know that you were created by him to love him, to worship and serve him, and him alone. And the fact is that if you're not saved, you've never done that. Nor, not you, not anyone, no one does and no one can. That's a fact. The fact is that we have all sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have cut ourselves off from God and from his righteousness. And we do that, why? because we're natural-born sinners. We're naturally born that way. We hate God, and in particular, we hate his claim of sovereignty over our lives. And because of our rebellion against him, we're destined for eternal wrath and for punishment in hell. But there is good news, and the good news is the gospel of what God has done in Christ to secure our salvation. In his great love, Jesus, who is God, became a man like us, except he never sinned, ever. 
He lived a perfect life, and people hated him for that. They nailed him to a cross, and they killed him. And while he hung on that cross, God the Father poured out his wrath upon him for all the sins of those who would ever turn and who would trust in him. He paid the debt that we owe to God for disobeying his commands. After he died, he's buried. But three days later, he rose again from the dead, showing that God had accepted his sacrifice and that the Father's wrath against us had been finally exhausted. He now calls on us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we do that, if we repent of our sins and if we trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. And he then gives us his Holy Spirit and slowly but he surely he changes our hearts. He changes our mindsets, our dispositions. And he reforms our desires and teaches us how to be children of God as we were originally and always intended to be. If you want to hear more about this good news, just please talk to somebody after the service. Now, as a believer begins to win this battle with, uh, on the inside, that believer can personalize what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.12, and it would read the following. 2 Corinthians 1.12, when Paul takes the, the collective, he's writing on behalf of himself and some of, some of his, uh, his uh, group there. He says, and, he, and we can say the same as him, for my proud confidence is this, the testimony of my conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, I have conducted myself in the world and especially toward you. So practically speaking, having said all this, it should go to say that, or should go actually without saying that the earlier in the process that we determine to resist, the greater the likelihood that we will avoid sin. And conversely, the longer that we take, the longer we put off, we procrastinate and, and uh, kind of kick the can down the road as far as our growing desire for something goes, the more likely the actual sin becomes. It is only the Christian who is able to control his emotional responses to temptations when they first appear and who will then effectively deal with sin in his life. The battle has to be fought in the mind where the sin is justified and thereby conceived. Yeah, of course, the, the desires of the heart require taming as well, but they are far less controllable or predictable. In other words, our desires are where our desires are. I mean, there's, we just go through life and there's something that appeals to us, you know, whether it's food or clothing or shelter or dogs and fish and whatever it is, pizza. It doesn't matter what it is. There's something that is always going to attract our desire for it. And so we can't really control that so much. Many desires, they're good, they're healthy, they're noble, but it's only when they reach this critical mass, this, this inordinate desire, this need for something, that they become the source of temptation to sin. And the truth of God, which activates the conscience, 
that our soul's warning system must be heard and not ignored. So only each individual believer can fight the battle in his or her mind or imagination, and nobody else can do it for you. Your mind, your mind is your battleground. That is the key. To lose the fight here in your mind moves you into the design stage in which the actual execution of the plan or the desire or the lust is actually conceived and planned and, and already noted, uh, once planned, it's very difficult to stop. We need to train our minds to watch over our emotional desires. And instead of rationalizing our temptations, we must prepare in advance to oppose them with God's word, just as Jesus did in the wilderness. And Paul admonishes us. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, right? Romans 12, 2. And especially helpful in this regard is Philippians 4, 8. And many of you, those are life verses for many of you. But it says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It's the mind. Dwell on that. Let's resolve to continue or at least to begin to do this with renewed vigor to God's glory. All right. We'll close in prayer. And Father, we just trust. We pray, we trust, we plead with you that this day, this morning, that we would have been uh, challenged, reminded, encouraged, motivated, rebuked, exhorted, whatever it is, Father, by way of your Holy Spirit, even as your word has been opened up to us this morning, that we would see how we have a role to play that through your word you tell us what your expectations are and how you want us to live and what pleases you and displeases you but we need to undertake the battle as well and we have to do our part and so father we want to do that we are encouraged to do that and through the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling within us and through the illumination of your word to us in the, in the way of truth, uh, we will have the ability and the guidance and the, the motivation that we need in order to live a life that is truly holy and pleasing to you. Help us to do that. Help us to do that well. Help us to do it without any hesitation, reservation, but just out of pure love and joy for what you have done for us. We pray that you would uh, take these things, plant them deep within us, and help us to not merely be hearers of your word, but also doers of it. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.